Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. My name is Kyle. I'm the co-host of the podcast Audio Judo, of which this podcast is an offspring. That's right. This podcast has finally burst forth, fully formed, from our ungirded loins. It did, however, need some help on its way. And that's where Chris, your host and jazz doula, comes into play. Before we discuss this episode's topic, I want to mention that both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you are interested in any genre of music, music history, or just want to discover great new music, Pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love. Visit www.pantheonpodcasts.com to see the entire catalog. Now, back to what you're here for. On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris discusses one of the pillars of jazz music, Miles Davis. From his early days playing bebop with Charlie Parker through his late period jazz fusion works, Chris talks about Miles' history and highlights some of his greatest works and must-listen albums. Take it away, Chris. Yep, Bono got me into jazz. As if he wasn't busy enough campaigning for Africa and forgiving third world debt, he inadvertently inspired this Midwestern boy to begin to think about jazz as something else to listen to. While this isn't my actual origin story, it's enough of a prelude to tide you over to the real thing. I started college in the fall of 1990. I must have been heavy into U2 at the time, having taped an obnoxious five-foot-long rattle and hum poster on the back of the door in my dorm room. That fall, I had my first drink of alcohol. It was to fit in more rather than to actually get drunk. I saw girls for the first time in four years after four years in an all-boys high school. I made several different groups of friends and had my first foray into jazz by way of Miles Davis. Rifling through the affordable bin of discs, ranging from $7.99 to $9.99, I came across two Miles Davis albums, Kind of Blue, recorded in 1959, and Sketches of Spain, recorded in 1960. I don't know where I heard the name Kind of Blue before, but it might have had something to do with the fact that it's the highest-selling jazz album of all time. I had heard of Sketches of Spain in an anecdote regarding the Jefferson Airplane song, White Rabbit. Prior to joining the band, Grace Slick had written the song after dropping acid and listening to Sketches of Spain for 24 hours. One pill makes you larger And one pill makes you small And the ones that mother gives you Sounded pretty wild to this 18-year-old. I can't say that Kinda Blue had any real effect on me the first couple times I listened to it. It sounded fine enough. The songs are laid back and pretty long at times. Miles played trumpet. A couple of guys, actually legends, played sax. John Coltrane on tenor and Cannonball Adderley on alto. Two different piano players play with a light touch, mainly Bill Evans, with Wynton Kelly on the song Freddy the Freeloader. Paul Chambers was on bass, and Jimmy Cobb on drums. I found Sketches of Spain more interesting at the time. It sounded like classical music, like the soundtrack to a movie, more than it sounded like jazz. I didn't play either of these albums too much, but I kept them around. Like another discovery that year, George Winston's December album. They were a slight diversion from what I normally listened to. 
Perhaps I thought they would mean more to me later on. Timing is everything when it comes to something new in your life. A year later, I picked up Bitches Brew. The first time I listened to that album may have been the weekend Miles Davis died, which was September 28, 1991. Matt from Audio Judo had come up to East Lansing to stay for the weekend. The first time we listened to it, I thought it sounded interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on. This is from his jazz fusion era, when Miles attempted to introduce elements of rock and roll into his music. That meant electricity in the form of electric piano, guitar, and bass. He recorded it around the time of Woodstock. The second time I listened to it, it blew my mind. The third time we listened to it, it sounded, well, boring. I'm not sure I've listened to it since. It is a double record after all. But how could a song entitled Miles Runs the Voodoo Down be boring, you might ask? I don't know. I traded it back to the used record store for something else not long after that. The Concerto de Aramwe, the first track from the Sketches of Spain album. But that beginning is so immediate, I had to play it for you. In Miles Davis's autobiography, which is a great read, by the way, packed with great stories, insight, and surely written in his voice, he recalls a moment in the 1980s when someone asked him what he had done to earn an invitation to the White House. Well, I've changed music five or six times, he replied. Coming out of anyone else's mouth, it might sound like an exaggeration or an outright lie. But to be honest, he basically did change music five or six times. I don't know anyone else in the history of modern music who can say that. Not the Beatles or Dylan or Bowie or Prince. The Beatles and Dylan may have changed music about three times each, but no one led the way into new music quite as much as Miles did. By changing music five or six times, Davis carved out entire landscapes or rather soundscapes, for other musicians to explore. He actually had about eight distinctive periods listeners can engage in. One, bebop, from 1944 to 1948 or so. Two, cool jazz, from 1949 to 1950. Three, hard bop, which he played throughout the 1950s. Four, a more arranged orchestrated music, starting in 1957. Five, modal jazz, beginning in 1958. Six, post-bop in the 1960s with his second great quintet. Seven, jazz fusion, beginning in 1969 and played through about 1975. And eight, whatever you want to label his music in the 1980s. Though no serious musician wants their music labeled in the first place. A restless artist, moving wherever the music would take him, he gives every newcomer to jazz different options, different directions, different trajectories to their own journeys. And it's not as if his music had ever been considered mediocre. 
I can't tell you how many times I read the terms landmark LP or masterpiece being used to describe one album or another in my research. If it didn't forge new ground, it became the gold standard by which other albums would be measured. Literally, Miles Davis has recorded something for everyone. You just have to find your way in. While the results of my first foray into jazz might be considered mixed at best, I think listening to Miles Davis is the perfect place to start for anyone new to the music. With so much to choose from, not only has he created open avenues for you to receive his music, he gives you the gift to reject it as well. Not everybody is going to love jazz fusion, or even bebop for that matter. Some of his music might sound too hard, some of it too light. All of it is viable. All of it is worth a listen. And in the ensuing years, he has released entire box sets with numerous outtakes for you to sift through. It Never Entered My Mind, from the Working with the Miles Davis Quintet album. I always thought it was one of his prettiest ballads. Originally from St. Louis, Miles had been accepted into the Institute of Musical Arts, later known as the Juilliard School of Music, in 1944. He came to New York to study there as a smokescreen for searching out Charlie Yardbird Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, but he soon tired of playing white, that is, classical music, and would cut classes. He played bebop in Charlie Parker's band from 1944 through 1948, a style that evolved in the early 1940s through jam sessions at a bar called Mitten's Playhouse. Musicians such as Parker on alto sax, Gillespie on trumpet, Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk on piano, Charlie Christian on guitar, and drummers Kenny Clark and Max Roach developed a speedier music, a more difficult music that's meant to be listened to rather than dance to. When you listen to his recordings with Bird, Miles keeps up with him and is playing fine, but he doesn't necessarily distinguish himself from other trumpet players from the era. He's not as fast as Diz, or another incredible trumpet player from the day, Fats Navarro. Jimmy Heath remembers Miles at jam sessions. He said, Fats ate Miles up every night. Miles couldn't outswing him, he couldn't outpower him, he couldn't outsweet him, he couldn't do anything except take that whipping on every tune. Only 23, 24 years old at the time, he hadn't truly found his voice. In 1949, after leaving Parker's band amid tensions in the group and not getting paid, he looked around for someone new to play with. Having struggled with the speed and intensity of Burden Diz, he went the other way. Collaborating with Gil Evans, an arranger he would record with several times through the years, he found several other like-minded musicians. He formed a non-net, which included the otherwise rare jazz instruments of French horn and tuba, and recorded the Birth of the Cool album over the course of three different sessions in 1949 and 1950. I'm not going to say that the cover of the album is iconic, but it has been referenced in Simpsons episodes. I think the name of the album sounds great, Birth of the Cool, but I'm not a big fan of it. It's lighter, drier, 
more relaxed, more orchestrated music. Like many of Miles Davis's albums, it gets the four and five star treatment from reviewers the world over, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it myself. That said, I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't at least mention it to you. The early 50s are somewhat of a lost period for Miles Davis. After a wonderful trip to Europe in which he had never felt more free in his life, where his music was viewed as high art, where he felt a less racist environment in which to live, where he fell in love with French singer and actress Juliette Greco, he came back home to numerous difficulties in America. Jazz was in a temporary decline. White musicians had taken up most of the jobs in New York. He couldn't find work. He also had a family to support. During this professional and emotional crisis, and not yet 24 years old, he got hooked on heroin, an all-too-often-told tale of jazz musicians. He struggled for years and even resorted to pimping for a while. He eventually moved back to St. Louis, moved in with his father, and kicked the habit cold turkey after seven or eight days. His recordings from the early 1950s are fine, actually better than one would imagine due to his heroin use. However, at this time, I wouldn't call them absolutely essential for someone new to Miles. Furthermore, the exact titles of the albums are a bit of a jumbled mess due to the change from the 10-inch LP to the 12-inch LP and the relative time capacities. This would be further muddled when CDs of the material were released some 30 to 40 years later. Once you've got a more firm grasp on Miles, I would recommend you seek this period out more fervently. In 1955, however, Davis's fortunes would change. An appearance at the Newport Jazz Festival, and specifically a performance of the Thelonious Monk song, Round Midnight, inspired an executive at Columbia Records, George Avakian, to sign him. No longer would he be on the prestige label. Columbia was the big time. was Round Midnight, the Thelonious Monk song that had caught George Avakian's ear at Columbia Records, the catalyst to Miles' new relationship with fame, with Train, and his ticket to the big time. Before I ever even dreamt of this podcast, I asked myself what would be the best place to start for any newcomer to jazz. If I were to do the same with rock and roll music, where would I begin? With Elvis? Chuck Berry? The Beatles? The Rolling Stones? Clearly, there are options. Clearly, there would have to be some sort of criteria met. It would have to be accessible. Why would you introduce the music with something obnoxious or off-putting? It would have to be recorded by one or more of the geniuses or giants of jazz. Some obscure artists wouldn't exactly put you into the epicenter of the music. For my taste, it would have to come from somewhere in the middle of the music's history. It's always interesting to drop the listener in the middle of what's going on. I could very easily have started you off with Louis Armstrong's music from the 1920s. It's the beginning after all, right? It's hot jazz. It's the music we imagine as being played at the Gatsby parties, at the flappers and everyone letting loose after the horrors of World War I. 
However, I wouldn't want the limitations of recording technology to play a part in wrecking the experience. Still, it's a viable place to start, and I wouldn't begrudge you if you started there. I could very easily have started you off with Duke Ellington's big band music from the 1930s and 40s. Everybody likes big band music, right? Well, I don't know. My experience with big band is slightly mixed. Also, I wouldn't know what I was talking about. It's bad enough I have to sound like I know what I'm talking about in all these other episodes. Fake it entirely, I'm sure, would not come across very well. I could very easily have started you off with Charlie Parker's bebop music from the 1940s. It's got that small combo feel of five guys at work, soloists, and rhythm section. It would get the structure of most modern jazz songs right away. Melody or theme at the top, solos, and then return to melody from the beginning. Could have chosen a different band. Art Blakey and his jazz messengers, perhaps. His band evolved over the course of 35 years from the 1950s up until his passing in 1990. Dozens of incredible artists passed through the ranks as if it were a college, a philosophy, a rite of passage for new, younger players. Now, this period, this is the reason I started off with Miles Davis. This is one of the main reasons why this podcast exists. Forget momentarily about that whole Miles giving the listener options thing I talked about earlier. And don't concern yourself with whatever point I'm going to try and make about leadership later on in the podcast. If you have any interest in coming to grips with jazz, any interest in the music whatsoever, any far-flung ideas about enriching your life or broadening your horizons, this is what you need to listen to. It's my belief that the best place to start your journey into jazz outside of listening to my amazing podcast, of course, is by listening to Miles Davis's first great quintet. This band is led by Miles on trumpet, with John Coltrane playing tenor sax, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. Initially, the band formed in September of 1955 and played together until 1957, and Coltrane had to be kicked out for a while due to, you guessed it, heroin use. Miles was clean now, and he didn't want anyone to screw it up. Train had temporarily been replaced by Sonny Rollins, but alto saxophonist Cannibal Adderley would join the band soon afterwards. Once Coltrane kicked the habit, played a while with Thelonious Monk, and showed that he could be reliable again, he returned to the fold. In 1958, Red Garland and Philly Joe Jones were replaced by Bill Evans and Jimmy Cobb, respectively. This would be the band that recorded Kind of Blue in 1959. In order to get out of his contract with Prestige Records, Miles had to deliver four more albums. The first great quintet's discography is dominated by these four albums recorded over two days in 1956. Largely made up of the repertoire the band had developed on stage, the four albums are as follows. Cookin' with the Miles Davis Quintet, Relaxin' with the Miles Davis Quintet, Workin' with the Miles Davis Quintet, and steaming with the Miles Davis Quintet. These four albums, along with Roundabout Midnight, also recorded around this time and containing the near title track that Columbia Records wanted, and their lone recording in 1955 called Miles, the new Miles Quintet, might be all you need to fall in love with jazz. The first thing I'd like to pass on to you is that it's not so much about the songs themselves, 
Without lyrics, without singing, without proper choruses to hook into and memorize and anticipate, it's more about the performances of the various instrumentalists. It's more about the artists' voices. With Miles and Coltrane in front on the horns, you have two incredible voices in the band, two incredibly different approaches to the music in one amazing juxtaposition. In American poetry, you have two opposing ideas, short and tight, like Emily Dickinson, or long and effusive, like Walt Whitman. In novels, you have Ernest Hemingway trying to tell his stories with as few words as possible, and you have William Faulkner writing sentences with 1,288 words in it. Miles Davis truly found his voice when he played only what he thought was needed. John Coltrane, on the other hand, tries to fit every idea he has into his solos. This would eventually lead years later to 20, 30, 58-minute versions of the song My Favorite Things. But that's a different episode. We'll get there. Coltrane once confessed that he had difficulties figuring out how to end his extended improvisation. Miles had a small piece of advice. Try taking the saxophone out of your mouth. Jazz is generally made up of ballads, blues, up-tempo jams, breezy vamping, blowing workouts, and craziness. At this point in time, Miles didn't go for crazy. His rhythm section of Garland, Chambers, and Jones could do it all. What Miles performed best during these years were his ballads. Earlier in the episode, I played It Never Entered My Mind from the Workin' album. On their initial New Miles Davis Quintet album from 1955, there's a great ballad called Just Squeeze Me. On the Cookin' album, his My Funny Valentine is iconic. To borrow someone else's phrase, it's the gold standard by which all other versions are compared. On the Relaxin' album, he has another favorite of mine, If I Were a Bell. And on the Steeman record, there's a song that tears me up a little bit called When I Fall in Love. It's rather difficult to recommend one album over the others. I'd recommend finding these ballads on YouTube or at a library and seeing which ones you like the best. If you like them all, it doesn't matter which ones are the best. You just have to pick each one up. <laughs> Miles Davis playing the song When I Fall in Love off of the Steeman with the Miles Davis Quintet album. I don't know the lyrics of that song, but it's played so well, I think I can imagine them. Miles recorded several albums around this time with Gil Evans, his collaborator from The Birth of the Cool Sessions. Miles Ahead, Porgy and Bess, Sketches of Spain, and Quiet Nights. Outside of Sketches of Spain, I haven't really listened to these records. Outside of the Landmark LP and masterpiece platitudes, there has never been any pull for me to listen to them. That might just make me an idiot for missing out on what are surely some incredible Miles Davis performances, but I've not been too interested during this period in listening to anything other than his collaborations involving John Coltrane. Outside of Kind of Blue, you can find Miles and Coltrane recording together on Milestones, the title track of his Someday My Prince Will Come album, 
and two live albums from this time in 1958, an album called Miles and Coltrane and a personally controversial album called 58 Miles, which I'll discuss in a future episode. There is a newish box set of official bootleg live recordings the two of them performed in 1960. I have heard the live at Stockholm show on a not-so-legitimate release. Coltrane is an entirely different man just a year or so after leaving to further develop his solo career. It's clear why he had to leave and do his own thing. And it's incredible. The way Coltrane twists the kind of blues song So What into something entirely new is an amazing thing to behold. By 1962, after having some health issues, all band members that he had in the 1950s had left him. However, instead of wondering what he would do next, he realized he was Miles Davis and picked up some of the baddest mother... Hold on, my kids might be listening, but he liked to use that word a lot. He realized he was Miles Davis and recruited the baddest players around for his next incarnation. He picked up Herbie Hancock on piano, Ron Carter from Ferndale, Michigan, where my mom grew up, on bass, and Tony Williams, a 17-year-old prodigy, on drums. These three would help shape jazz in the 1960s, whether it was in Miles' band, their own bands, or playing sessions with other musicians. I highly recommend looking for their names in the liner notes of other records. Armed with the innovations brought on in the last few years, this band let loose. Initially, with George Coleman on tenor sax, they recorded a phenomenal album called Four and More, recorded in 1964. Shortly after that, Wayne Shorter left Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, and Miles Davis's second great quintet was born. They would go on to release albums throughout the 1960s that I understand rank right up there with all the albums his first great quintet recorded in the 1950s. I say that because I have a thing. Did you ever hear that story about Mary Hart from the television show Entertainment Tonight? As the story goes, Mary Hart's voice triggered seizures in an epileptic woman in 1991. This story was referenced in an episode of Tiny Toon Adventures in the show Seinfeld where Kramer would suffer from convulsions whenever he heard her voice. I have never suffered from epileptic seizures, and my intention is not to make light of it here. However, in my research years ago, in attempting to listen to Miles' second great quintet, I realized that I always got a headache listening to them. I didn't when I heard that incredible Four and More album. I didn't when I listened to some of Herbie Hancock's albums. I didn't when I heard Tony Williams's incredible drumming on other albums. However, when I listened to a couple of Wayne Shorter's solo albums, that same thing happened. Headache City. I don't know why, really. His playing isn't so far out there that it would cause any headache. There are a handful of saxophonists that I listen to that play crazier than he does. He's also, from what I understand, a fine composer. One of the finest in jazz history. Perhaps this explains why Bitches Brew didn't do too much for me after my second listen to the album. He was on it. Now it makes sense. So I just want to recommend that you give the band a try with a caveat. That you would have to go into it because so many other people like their music. Life is too short for me to have to power through headaches just to give something a listen. Mr. Shorter, if you're out there, you deserve better than this. My thing shouldn't be a blight on your career and any future sales of your records. Please forgive me. 
that is the considerably more revved up Miles Davis quintet from 1964 on the live Four and More album, with Miles Davis showing glimpses of his future playing, backed by the powerhouse drummer, Tony Williams. Miles Davis is the leader of two of the greatest bands ever assembled in the history of jazz. Each band stayed together for the most part for four to five years. In jazz, that's practically an eternity. Usually, musicians go where the action is. They follow their muse or dollar signs. Their art is brought out by different players with different ideas. Some bands are assembled for a singular recording session. Others are created to go out on tour for a few months. Some bands have a regular gig at a particular club for a while. They don't normally stay together for too long. Something always gets in the way. Ego, drugs, work, or just wanting to play something different with other contexts, with other musicians. Miles was able to assemble two groups for years at a time. I imagine they all knew their roles. They all liked what they performed, felt fulfilled where the music took them, and enjoyed the perks in being in one of the hottest bands in the world. Miles let everyone be themselves. Everyone felt valued in their role for what they had to offer. They felt a kinship in wherever they were taking the music together. Or maybe they just liked the money or fame that came attached. He had a vision and the others saw it to make that vision come to fruition. So many of the musicians in his band would become leaders themselves over the next few decades, spreading something positive in the world. In light of what our country has evolved into over the course of the last four, 12, nearly 250 years, I thought this episode on Miles Davis would be a perfect opportunity to discuss the value of leadership. But my wife requested that I make it light. She is the boss, after all. In the absence of the ability to make it a light monologue, with there being so much other noise about it, you don't need my opinion on what makes a great leader. With no wish to further divide the possible handful of people who might be listening to this, let me just say I would hope leaders put themselves in a position of service while putting those that follow them in the position to succeed, thus creating better leaders for our future. I think that's as political as my wife will allow me. So, as I said earlier, the album Bitches Brew didn't do a lot for me in those early days. I gave another album, called In a Silent Way, a listen recently. Davis recorded the album prior to Bitches Brew, and it's a precursor for fusion music. It doesn't do much for me either. That said... I would be remiss in not mentioning it, as so many people have remarked that it's another one of those landmark LPs, another in a long line of masterpieces that Miles has recorded. While I've not delved too much into his music of the 70s, albums with titles like Dark Magus and Live Evil do sound pretty interesting. I saw a live clip with Keith Jarrett on keyboards, and the drumming sounded insistent and propulsive. I absolutely recommend the album A Tribute to Jack Johnson, though. It's about as rock music as Miles gets. McLaughlin is phenomenal on guitar on that record. And you guessed it, Wayne Shorter is no longer with his band. He had gone on to help form the 1970s powerhouse fusion band Weather Report. McLaughlin went on to help to form the Maha Vishnu Orchestra. That's just two more examples of Davis's disciples leading the way in the next incarnations of jazz. Miles' story doesn't end there. He would take off five or six years in the late 70s and begin again in the 80s. I have had almost no desire to listen to his 80s music until late last night when I began listening to a live album called 
We Want Miles. I liked it. I haven't listened to it enough to recommend it to anyone, but perhaps there's yet another avenue for me to listen to in the future. With Miles, it's endless. God bless you. All my love, Chris. And there you have it. Miles Davis in a nutshell. The Birth of the Cool is one of the albums that got me interested in jazz in the first place, and it still gets played around my house frequently when I need to relax and cool off. As for what you may find interesting to listen to, well, Chris has some recommendations, split into three categories. The first category of albums is with Miles Davis as band leader, beginning with the new Miles Davis Quintet from 1955, Cookin', Relaxin', Working, and Steamin', four great albums, all from 1956, uh, Roundabout Midnight, which is also from 1956, Milestones from 1958, Kind of Blue from 1959, Sketches of Spain from 1960, Four and More from 1964, and 1970's A Tribute to Jack Johnson. The next category is with Miles as a Sideman. Charlie Parker's albums titled The Complete Recordings on Savoy and Dial from 1944 through 1948, and Cadaball Adderley's Something Else from 1958. Finally, the last category is albums Chris would be remiss if he didn't mention 1957's Birth of the Cool, 1957's Miles Ahead, 1959's Porgy and Bess, 1965's Cookin' at the Plugged Nickel, 1969's In a Silent Way, and 1970's Bitches Brew. Pick a few of those and give them a listen. Then drop us a line and tell us what you think. Our website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. That's Audio Judo Does Jazz. You can also get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo Does Jazz, Twitter, at Audio Judo Jazz, or a good old-fashioned email, jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, send an email to chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more information at www.audiojudo.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk at you next time.